This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I want to welcome all of you to tonight's Exploring Ethics Forum. I'm Mike Kalichman. I'm the director for the Center for Ethics in Science and Technology and a professor, uh, director of the Research Ethics Program at UC San Diego. Our program with the Ethics Center, and this program tonight and all of our programs, are designed as ways to address exciting new developments in science and technology. The premise of what we're doing is that we want to facilitate conversations between scientists and academics on one side and members of the public on the other side. Um, This is intended to be a two-way conversation. We don't just want to help you understand what's coming down the line, but also to hear your thoughts and to talk together about where the ethical challenges might be and what kinds of things we might do to address those challenges. Last year, for those of you who were um, part of our, joined our program, you know, we had a series that dealt with the question of cancer. I had a variety of programs. Uh, It was very exciting and went very well. Um, This year, for a number of reasons, we've been on a hiatus. Uh, This is hopefully the start of getting going again. Um, This will be, I'm hoping, the first of of many programs. But we don't have the other programs scheduled yet, so just stay tuned to our website to learn what else is coming. Tonight's program in particular um, is uh, being supported by the National Institutes of Health. The presenter tonight, Dr. Susan Little, and I are co Um, leads on an NIH grant to look at the ethical questions of a particular area of science and technology. Um, Susan um, first actually presented on this topic in our series before, in 2010, a few years ago. She has been a leader in the battle against HIV infection, trying to figure out how to deal well with identifying mechanisms by which infections occur and the circumstances of transmission and what we can do to limit that occurring. Um, She has been developing tools along the way to accomplish this goal, but has at the same time been asking questions about how best to deal with this research from an ethical perspective. Based on that, Susan and I have this grant, as I mentioned, um, and you will in a certain way be part of that conversation and that grant's goals tonight. Um, This is the purpose of tonight's program, and I want you to join me in welcoming Susan, who will now present. So thank you very much and welcome. Um, As Dr. Kalichman said, um, my goal tonight is to learn from you. So um, I will try and share with you a little bit about the kind of research we've been developing, its implications, and then hopefully get some feedback from you about what you think the risks and benefits are of this research and, more importantly, what the balance between those two is. So just by way of background, um, the epidemic spread of infection. Understanding the spread of infectious diseases in populations is key to controlling them. Epidemic disease uh, spread is determined by the properties of the pathogen, the contagiousness, the length of the infectious period, the severity, et cetera, um, and the network structures within the population. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight, the structure that HIV transmission takes within a population. Um, An understanding of these issues may provide insights for preventing the spread of disease. So what is an HIV transmission network? First of all, each strain of HIV is unique. Um, Thus, if a person is infected with HIV, um, the sequence has a fingerprint-like quality. It tends to identify one individual. So if we know the sequence of the virus, 
um, that sequence is linked to that person, not to anyone else in the community. And even though HIV, every person is infected with a different strain of HIV, they're subtly different, so that just like a fingerprint, you can distinguish one person's HIV from another person's. So HIV-infected people can be identified as having viruses that are very similar or dissimilar. So for instance, if one person infects two different people, those two different people will have a very similar strain of virus. It came from the same person. If two people infect someone, one A infects B and C infects D, um, B and D are going to have very different strains of viruses. They came from different people. Okay? So this information can be used to estimate the location, direction, rate of spread of HIV within a community. So location, what venues are associated with more HIV? What direction is HIV moving between individuals and within the population? How rapidly is HIV spreading within the community? And this overall forms the HIV transmission network. So when we go for understanding, uh, trying to better understand the network, um, this is what we view as a real-world sexual network with dashed lines indicating sexual contact. So there are, in this case, six individuals in our network. They've had sex in, you know, these associations. And that is what the real network looks like. However, what we usually see when we sample, for instance, in a research study, we never sample 100% of the population. So we, in this case, sampled only four out of the six individuals. So we see some, but not all, members of the network. Um, the HIV genetic sequence information, all of these people are infected, is determined for each of the individuals. And what you can see here are that solid lines uh, indicate very similar viruses. This person, everyone who's infected by HIV, was infected by someone else. So the fact that we have no link to this person <coughs> simply means that we're missing the person who infected them. We have a sampling bias. We never sample everyone in the population. So there are alternative realities, though. Um, similar viruses do not verify or prove transmission. So we cannot prove that A transmitted to D to then to C or vice versa. We can only infer the likelihood of transmission. That is, A, we may infer or estimate transmitted to D, and then D transmitted to C could go the other direction, depending, again, on dates of transmission and other things we use to estimate the, the direction of transmission, but we're only making a best guess. The addition of unsampled or unknown people with HIV infection could change the network connection. So, for instance, if we go, we only have our four people, now um, we have a new person um, that appears, and all of a sudden the direction of transmission may look like A didn't infect C, A infected this person, this person infected C. But we would never have known that because we were missing that individual. So again, the addition of unsampled or as they become sampled people can completely change the dynamics, the direction of HIV and the inferred uh, message that we get from this network. Um, thus, um, these data cannot be used to prove transmission. That is a very big point of this uh, message that I'm trying to give. We are making best estimates of direction and likelihood that two individuals are infected by a similar virus, but never that one person definitely infected another. 
So just to give you an idea of real-world models of similar networks, believe it or not, an HIV transmission network has the same structure as the airline traffic network in the United States. Lots and lots of networks have a similar structure to the HIV network. And what I mean by that is there are um, airports that have very few connections, and then there are these so-called hubs in red that have many connections. In HIV transmission networks, there are a few individuals with many connections and many more individuals who are sparsely connected to the network. So this is the same when one looks at hubs in uh, airline uh, traffic. So what happens when you try to disrupt the network? So in our case, we're trying to disrupt the HIV transmission network. We're trying to prevent new people from becoming infected. How do we do that? If we could disrupt the network so that we weren't effectively transmitting anymore, the network would ultimately disintegrate. So, for instance, in the airline traffic model, um, we've got our hub here. Let's call that O'Hare. Um, but in this model, going from before to after, we're going to selectively uh, remove one node. Okay? In this case, they're calling it a failed node. Um, the air traffic tower goes down. So I'm going to Rochester, New York, goes down. No air traffic in or out of Rochester. But you can see that not much happens to the network. The rest of the airline traffic continues to flow as it did before. Now contrast that to what they call here attack on a hub. If we then remove selectively this node, the entire network disintegrates. We've removed one node, one location in both situations, yet one has a minimal impact on the network, one has a rather massive impact on the network. So our goal is to look at HIV in the same way. Can we use prevention tools, treatment is a typical example, to massively disrupt the network by treating or intervening on a small number of people as opposed to what I'm going to propose we do now, which is intervene on a large number of people, many of those interventions from a population standpoint have a relatively limited impact. So network-focused prevention. So effective HIV treatment can reduce the risk of HIV transmission, that is the spread, by 96%. So our goal, for instance, is to identify vulnerable targets, people who are associated with a disproportionate amount of the transmission in our network. For instance, in this case, our airline hubs, okay? And then promote the use of effective HIV treatment within these hubs with the hope that if we reduce transmission by 96% in these highly connected individuals, we'll have a very great impact on disruption uh, of the entire network in our community. So what does an HIV network look like? So first you take HIV-infected individuals. They're connected to one another by the similarity or dissimilarity of their sequences. The, again, the more closely linked viruses we tend to draw with a solid line. And then we add on top of that person-specific information, age, race, gender, venue-specific information. What was the location of the risk uh, behavior? We can then add that kind of information so that we can, for instance, now say we have um, a few people who function as hubs. They are highly connected, and we can place them within the community. We know that they frequent certain venues. We know that they tend to be a certain race or ethnicity a certain age, a certain gender, and you put all that together, we have a lot of 
personal information about people who are associated with a great deal of transmission, not people who we know transmitted a lot, but people who are in networks where they appear to be highly connected, okay? So we're not proving, we're saying these people are highly associated with the greatest um, burst of HIV transmission in our community. So this is what our transmission network looks like. Every circle is an individual. The lines between individuals are, are shown, are indicating linked viruses. So all of these are similar viruses. 50% of the people we identify with HIV are highly linked. That is, they have related viruses. 50% of people are not. The 50% of people that are not, that aren't linked to anyone, aren't shown in this figure because they're just single round dots and they don't contribute to the figure. But what that means is obviously, again, we have a sampling bias. 50% of the people are not connected to anyone. We simply haven't found the person who infected them yet. And we can say that because we know that when we find two people with a similar virus, we can cluster them and see that this person, for instance, is associated with many more linked transmissions than this person. So this, if you blow it up, we actually then start drawing arrows. So for instance, you know, we can say, obviously this person was not infected four times or five times. All we can say is that's the direction that HIV is moving within this network. Um, so similarly, and the color coding has to do with um, the stage of infection, which I'm not going to go into at this point, um, but mostly just to show that we can get ideas about if you wanted to target effective trans, uh, prevention, rather than targeting you know, these people down here, I would want to focus on these people. And so the question becomes, the ethical question becomes, now we're talking about targeting therapy to people that we think may have a disproportionate impact on transmission in our community. So what are the ethical pros and cons, the risks and benefits, the risk to personal privacy, the benefit to public health? So some simulations, and what this just means is that we've done some modeling exercises to show that using the same data that I just showed you, these, the network that we've modeled or measured, um, we can then look at targeting antiretroviral therapy. So these are examples, models, using real data. So if we look at the network on, these are both the exact same network, they're just displayed somewhat differently for visualization effect. But here we're going to target 11 individuals, 11 nodes at random. We just randomly pick 11 people and treat them with highly effective therapy in this model. And what you can see is that the um, darkness of the red is the likelihood that we interrupt transmission. So for instance, we target this individual they're not linked to anyone, that it has no impact in the population. There's no effect that individual benefits, but the population doesn't necessarily benefit from this individual being treated. Um, this individual is treated, and there is an impact. So there's a pretty significant um, reduction of the likelihood of transmission associated with, again, the, the redness of the, um, of the associated nodes. So there are some local effects. We randomly target these black individuals, and there is some local prevention that occurs. In contrast, if we target those who are most highly linked to others, 
So these individuals in this cluster, this one individual associated with many, many uh, transmissions, what you see is lots and lots of layers of HIV transmission are interrupted. So again, this is a model, but it would suggest that by targeting 11 highly connected nodes as compared to 11 randomly selected nodes, nodes or individuals, this model gives us a much greater impact uh, in terms of disrupting of the network, breaking apart, disrupting HIV transmission, as opposed to this, which is uh, a much more limited and local uh, effect. So what are the limitations of doing these kinds of analyses? Um, current techniques, I've said, are not reliable enough to estimate the direction of transmission with certainty. We're making our best guess. Um, secondly, similar strains may be found in more than two individuals, especially if they're part of the same transmission network. So, for instance, in our network, we have A and B. The stars simply indicate HIV infected. If we, in our network, believe that A uh, transmitted to B, the direction is going this way, that's what our network looks like. But in fact, A may have been transmitted to this person, this person transmitted to B. So this is why we're never going to prove that A infected B. We have never sampled 100% of the network. So even if their strains of virus are nearly identical, we cannot prove that A infected B. So similarly, B goes on to infect C or some intermediary. C looks like he is infecting many or multiple people, three people here, but in fact, you know, again, this person infects through an intermediary. So we, are, we know that we have a biased representation of the network, but we believe that we've sampled the network densely enough that we can make some highly educated um, conclusions about where therapy would most effective, be most effective in interrupting transmission within the network. And I say treatment, HIV treatment, but you can look at a lot of different prevention interventions, whether it's treatment of sexually other tra sexually transmitted infections, condom use, um, substance use reduction, any prevention intervention you wish to study, um, you could study using these kinds of network data. So what, what is the law around HIV transmission? Um, so um, HIV transmission in the law, the blue um, stars indicate states that have um, HIV-specific criminal laws or statutes on the books that criminalize some element of HIV transmission. So um, in 1990, Congress passed the Ryan White Care Act, mandated that states criminalize intentional transmission of HIV. In 2000, Congress reauthorized the act but removed the criminalization requirement. Many states have just kept these laws on their books because they perhaps weren't being enforced, but they're still there. 32 states thus currently have laws that criminalize the transmission of HIV. 25 states criminalize one or more behaviors that pose a low or negligible risk for transmission. So these laws perpetuate and condone stigma and discrimination against people with HIV. So you can imagine if I'm talking about targeting groups of individuals, individuals, saying that by treating this individual, there will be a personal benefit to the individual, but also a very significant public health benefit, the debate becomes, will that information uh, cause a problem, a, a violation of the privacy of the individual involved um, in the way that, you know, there could be um, criminal consequences potentially from these data. 
So our goal here as part of this um, uh, effort, this ethics um, discussion, is to develop and deploy privacy-preserving methods for analyzing HIV network dynamics in order to share predictions about future network growth and quantitative, actually be able to estimate the amount of privacy risk associated with those predictions. So if we could share with health officials in San Diego, we know that HIV is growing most rapidly in this population, in this region of the city, and specifically um, at this particular venue. Should we be doing that? If we're going to share that kind of information, what should be the restrictions associated with it? So right now, this is an active area of research, not just in our group, but in several groups across the country and now throughout Europe. Um, and it's a high priority area for um, the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And so I think as we, this is going to happen. <laughs> so I think as we roll out this kind of research, the question becomes, shouldn't we be rolling out policies and procedures to protect the individuals involved? So I'm just going to acknowledge the funders, um, most of it being NIH and our collaborators who have referred patients for this study because all the data that I've shown you are um, part of a research project that we can't do without consumers who are willing to share these kinds of data. And I think we're going to stop there, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Kalichman again. I'm going to start by asking a couple of questions of Susan for context here for this evening. And, and the first one is, basically, why are you doing this? Why, why, are you, why are you not just doing your research, just going into the lab, doing your studies? Why are you worrying about the public's perceptions and thinking about the ethics of what you're doing? Well, I, I think that um, the easy answer to that is that I believe, and I think most HIV care providers do, that everyone who's HIV infected should be on therapy. The reality is that that is not happening. So in the United States, potentially, arguably, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we frankly don't do a very good job of providing everybody who's HIV infected with effective therapy. Um, so the epidemic is not slowing at all. Um, it has remained fairly stable, and among the largest group at risk for HIV in the United States, men who have sex with men, gay men, the numbers are actually increasing. So my goal was to figure out what we're doing is things we need to move faster. What we're doing right now is not particularly effective. We have great therapy, but it's not having an impact on the epidemic overall. So we started to question, are there more effective ways of using the same therapy? And found that by, again, studying network structure, we think there are. Um, and we'd like to be able to share those with the com healthcare community at large. But before we share those conclusions, those studies with others, it seemed important to figure out some of the issues related to personal privacy and where the community, both professional community and consumers, came down on the question of is the risk worth the benefit? Good. So, so in that context, I know you've been doing this research for a while, so how long, to let everybody else know, how long have you been doing research on looking at sequences of HIV among patients and trying to determine um, networks of transmission? Well, the, the network uh, map that I showed you started in 1996. Um, so we've been doing this a number of years. And early on, as I mentioned early on, we don't sample the population 100%. We haven't identified everybody who's HIV infected in San Diego. 
So in 1996, our sample size was very small. We could make no network predictions. It really wasn't until a decade after we'd been doing it that we realized we had sampled the network densely enough, and I can tell you how we made that assumption, but we finally sampled the population enough that we could start to draw some conclusions about the direction of spread of HIV and how we might actually use that network structure to inform our prevention interventions. So since about 2005 is when we've really been focused on sort of using the network data to target interventions. So if we think of individuals as nodes, how many nodes do you have now? Well, <laughs> for San Diego. yeah, illustrated here was probably, I think I showed about 350. As I said, 50% of the network is not connected. So that means the real network is 700. We're now much closer to 1,000. Um, so again, the good news is we have a lot of data. The bad news is that means we still see a lot of new HIV infection in San Diego. Okay. Now, over this period of time, what would you say, doing this kind of research, what would you say are the benefits that have, been accru- that have accrued so far, if any? What have you learned? What, what are we getting out of this? Well, I think, uh, you know, just from the patient standpoint, I think one of the most exciting things is that the pendulum, as we call it, of treatment recommendations. Um, when we first started this, Uh, The recommendation was wait on therapy until people are, frankly, pretty sick. Um, And transmission just continued during that period, because if you're not on therapy, you're at great risk of transmitting to others. And so the treatment pendulum has swung all the way back um, to the point that it is now um, routinely recommended that anyone who's HIV infected be on therapy regardless of how long they've been infected, one day, one week, one year, 10 years. Um, so I think watching that um, has, has been the most rewarding thing because the individuals who are infected live normal lives um, with near normal life expectancy. So the, the change in treatment has been staggering um, and has renewed um, the, the health and uh, functional uh, life expectancy of most people who are newly infected today. Thanks. And, okay, so that's on the plus side. So based on what you've done so far, I mean, the, the idea of ethics is to look at what are the risks, what are the benefits that we're trading off. Um, so what risks have you perceived that either you worried about or that actually came to pass? That, yeah. I don't think we've had any um, concerns that have come to pass, but I think the, the most obvious is when we draw a link between two individuals, The concern is we have their names, we have their addresses, we have lots of personal information about them. So, for instance, if we identify somebody who's newly diagnosed, one of the first questions that they always ask is, who'd I get this from? So, you know, the concern always is that if if they decide they've figured that out, will they want to proceed with any kind of a legal case against that person? Um, So we have taken, the steps we've taken are, number one, a lot of um, limitation to the data. So, for instance, all of the names, um, what we call um, uh, personal health information that uh, goes with every one of those nodes. There are a very small number of people who are actually allowed to see that. I do not have permission to see the names. So I can look at the maps all I want, but I can't just pull up the name of everybody that goes with that. Um, That is highly restricted, and you have to have specific permission to access those data. Um, And then the second is what we call a certificate of confidentiality. All the work that we do around uh, the, excuse me, the transmission network studies is protected by a 
NIH Certificate of Confidentiality, which essentially says that if an individual wanted access to our data for any purpose, uh, health insurance claim, lawsuit, um, curiosity, they can't get it. So if we are um, provided a subpoena, we do not have to provide those data. Um, so it's really kept, um, we, we hope, as secure as is possible. Um, so we've taken a lot of steps to limit access to these data so that um, we can show these kinds of information, but um, we aren't going to share any of the personal information that goes with it. So with the, that part you mentioned about the, the worry about one person finding out who infected them and, mm-hmm. and, and the, the worry um, in a number of states about that being a criminalized behavior. Um, I'm not a lawyer, and I know you're not either, but um, it occurs to me that if the argument is that it was criminal to pass it on um, intentionally, um, and if we don't know whether A passed it to B and B passed it to C, or if A passed it to C, but we do know that A chronologically is close enough that A probably passed it to somebody who passed it to C. Is A still, do you think A is still liable? Any, any information on that? Well, you know, unfortunately, this is where, um, I don't know how many lawyers there are in the audience, but um, there's creative um, interpretation of these data. So there are um, sort of demonstration cases, um, including one where an individual knew he was HIV infected, was fully suppressed, meaning his, he's on treatment, his risk of transmitting is negligible. He had sex with someone, he told that person he was HIV infected, and he used a condom. Um, and that person, um, I think, found out later that, that he was infected. I think he hadn't told him up front, um, and sued him. And he went to jail. Um, so, you know, this was an Idaho case, I believe. Um, and so these cases have occurred. He was later acquitted, but listed as a sex offender. Um, and then later again, um, that was further, um, um, the, the charges were removed. But, you know, that individual had a pretty terrible life probably for seven, eight years, and maybe still because of, again, the stigma associated with that. And I would argue he did nothing wrong. Um, So I think, first and foremost, many people believe they know who infected them, and our studies would suggest that the majority of people are wrong. So when they say, I've had four partners, I know it's him, and we get him in, him is often not the person because we can tell based on the genetic sequence. So people aren't very good at predicting who infected them. Um, And just because we know um, from a scientific standpoint that you cannot use these data to prove, it doesn't mean that in a court of law people haven't used exactly these kinds of data to um, criminalize uh, or indict an individual who had an exposure like this. Um, so there are a lot of cases, um, demonstration cases, and I hope that HIV will be uh, decriminalized in every state. But I think it's always the concern that the laws that are sitting on the books could be used, and that's what people are afraid of. Yeah, so it sounds like much of what you need to do, ideally, is protect against an imperfect legal system. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and you know, that's another question. Can that legal system be repaired 
to appropriately deal with this. But in, that, in the absence of that, the question is what can you do to protect against the risks yeah. that go with being part and of the And I just I want to add one more thing, and that is most of the laws talk about intentional transmission. And, and again, it's very difficult to prove intent. So that's where, again, some of the grayness uh, hangs in the law. Um, to simply say a person was aware of their HIV infection status and knowingly had sex with someone else, some people would interpret as intentionally exposing someone else. So, such as all of us have intentionally transmitted the cold to somebody else at go. some point <laughs> or another, um, not knowing we are intentionally doing it. Um, so, um, one, I don't know how many more questions we get to before we get the questions from the audience, but um, so there are risks associated with being part of a study like what the studies you have, um, and those risks have to do with information that might be used to infer but not prove um, infection. At, at least that's one of the kinds of risks. How do those risks compare with if I were HIV infected and I simply went to my doctor, I never participated in research studies, so I'm only being treated clinically, presumably some of the same information is there. How do the risks in those two situations differ? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, in today's era of universal computer access of everything, um, there's probably a risk involved in anything, you know, your credit card information being stolen, et cetera. So if you're in a doctor's office and your HIV status is part of their electronic medical record, just as it is with patients here, I'm a believer that any computer system, I guess, can be hacked. So it's it's a matter of how desirable the, the target is. Fortunately, I don't think any most people care about private doctor's offices. Banks are more interesting. Um, so in terms of, you know, um, unintentional loss of data due to, you know, nefarious activities, we're all at risk. Um, and HIV is a reportable disease, meaning named reporting occurs um, since uh, 2006, I think, in, Sandy, in California. So that means that every newly identified person and their name are reported to the state, to the Office of AIDS. Um, so technically, again, anybody who's in care for HIV, um, their name is part of a public record. Um, I, again, I think the goal of that public record is not to know who people are and where they live and what their jobs are. It's to count people in various regions because allocation of resources are based on the number of people who are infected in each region. Um, so again, I think, um, I think there are risks to every aspect of life in terms of the amount of data that we now share with people. Um, I, I think that the risks that I'm mostly talking about tonight, yes, there are risks involved in, in research. Um, you know, one of the ones I often quote, I'm less worried about the data that we have in our databases because I think we've taken enormous uh, care to limit the access um, and encryption and, and things like that. But, um, but I can't do anything about the patient who walks out of our lobby and meets somebody he knows. Okay, now... We're an HIV clinic, so there's some risk of disclosure just by being in the study that we had no control over, just as there would be in a, in a doctor's office. So I think there are a lot of risks that are universal. Anytime you share your name, your address, your anything, I'm less worried about it in a research setting because, as I said, I'm not sharing this data with anyone except in abstracted form without any identifiers. The concern is... For it to be useful, I need to share it. So I'm trying to figure out how to do that to minimize the risk to the individuals involved and maximize the public health benefit. Okay. 
Thanks. So um, we have a few questions, and I've just sorted one to the top because we've sort of touched on it, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit. It's exactly what they're asking for. Um, they're saying, if HIV network research cannot, in fact, prove transmission between partners, then I'm not sure what the legal concern is. The virus origin cannot be proven. Can you please elaborate? Yeah. And Lawyers have uh, won cases with um, data simply showing linkage. So in order to prove transmission, you need to have what we call epidemiologic data, so an assault. Um, person A accuses person B. They both, you know, seminal samples, you know, things like this. There are biological samples that are collected. But as in any case, the question is, can you, will the sequence alone prove it? No. But if you have a linked sequence and A says that he was assaulted by B, um, you put that together with a linked sequence, that might be enough to convict somebody. And yes, the assault could have happened. Yes, they have the same strain of virus, a very closely related. It still doesn't mean that A infected B. But you may lose that case. So it, it has to do with the, the vagaries, the grayness around the law. Can you pull together enough other circumstantial data that may be highly compelling and now throw on top of that a highly linked virus to say, I think that there's you know, no reasonable doubt and convict. And obviously it depends on the jury and the state and whatnot. So I'm going to um, give a little background related to the next question. So what, we, what you could say is in terms of direction of transmission, um, if you had enough information such as person A has been HIV positive for 10 years, person B was not HIV positive until just recently, they had sex, the viruses are very similar. If you had to guess about direction of transmission, you would know, you would right. be able to say something about direction of transmission. But there are circumstances where you might not have enough other information to suggest A to B or B to A. So, and, and this person is asking, isn't one more infected than the other? Um, is there some way that you can tell who is infected first by something about the virus? Increasingly, yes. I mean, this is part of the... This is a dynamic field, and I'll use the royal we. People who do this kind of research are getting better and better about what they can infer, estimates that they can make. Um, and one of those is, as Dr. Kalichman said, we can look at duration of infection, one person's long-standing infection, one's new. You can make a guess that it went from the long-standing to the newly infected if they have a closely related virus. But without that kind of information, we can now look more closely at the sequence itself and longer stretches of sequence from different areas of the virus. And we're starting to be able to make predictions about the, who's been infected longer. So I think, you know, again, within the next few years, yes, it probably will be possible to make some educated guesses about the direction of transmission, even among groups of people who have all been infected for more than five years. Good. So um, next one relates to the question of interventions. Once you did your network analysis and you found some places you might want to intervene, so there are opportunities to intervene at targeted specific individuals um, versus at individuals who fit a fairly narrow profile, a specific profile. Yeah. So what they're asking for is to, I, I'm not sure that this has actually been done yet or to what extent, but I guess they're asking prospectively, um, where is the effort going to be put or how, what's the weight of the effort? Okay. So I think the first thing is the data that I showed you are simulations, they're models. So the first thing we wanted to be able to do was um, validate our own data in a real-world setting. 
And that's a little bit challenging because while I talk about targeting interventions, I firmly believe every infected person should be on therapy. So we run uh, an HIV screening program. When we find people who are HIV infected, we offer therapy to everyone. So I I can't ethically target and say people that aren't highly connected, I'm not going to treat you. I want to treat everybody. So what we're doing in a prospective fashion is looking at people's choice to accept therapy, yes, no, some people start very early, some people delay a bit, and look at the impact that that treatment has on the network. So for instance, people who start therapy within their first week of new infection, um, and specifically not newly diagnosed, but newly infected, somebody was negative a week ago, they're positive today, they start therapy, the first day they find out they're infected, treatment of people who are very recently infected is expected to have a disproportionate effect on the network. That is to say, newly infected people are associated with the majority of onward transmissions. So if we can eliminate that, we would expect to see something like we saw in the simulation that newly infected people over the course of years, the cluster associated with them will break apart. Um, and people who start therapy later may stay more highly connected. So it's a real-time, real-world observational study um, with the hope that we can validate the simulations that I showed tonight. Um, but there is the potential that, you know, in the future, um, and by that I mean when we've worked out some of these privacy issues and when we're pretty convinced that the data are real, that we could do an intervention in the real-world setting, um, and that would mean all of these sequence data are routinely available. Everyone who's HIV diagnosed gets a resistance test, and that's the sequence data we're using. So those data are available for, I hope, every infected person in care. Um, And one of the questions would be, when you send off the blood to get that sequence, it might be possible to share with the provider who's getting the resistance test back some estimate of how connected that individual was in the community. So that's where the the sort of um, uh, impetus for this kind of ethics study came up was we think we may have the means to share these data with HIV care providers, but should we? And that's, that's where we're going with this. And I think, again, I'd like to see that happen, but with enough... Um, privacy protection involved, that people are comfortable that this, I mean, all we need is a few bad outcomes in terms of legal cases, and no one will want to do this kind of research, and patients won't want to do this kind of research. That leads to a a question which might uh, warrant a show of hands quickly, a very simple one, which is, so if you were HIV infected, how many of you would not want your primary care doctor to know that you were highly connected, suggesting a possibility that you were a hub or a source of a lot of infections. How many would not want your doctor to know that? That you're highly connected. Oh, that it suggests that you may you may be a hub. You may be a person who's infecting many others. Pardon? Yeah. Lots of partners. How many of you would not want your doctor to know? So just a handful. How many, just to be sure, how many of you would want your doctor to know that? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Well, it's 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 that's yeah. it's that's data of sorts. It's you know, interesting observation. And, and one one observation related to that: um, 
again, part of the question, we feel like we can make some, again, educated guesses about people who are highly connected, but we could look at person A and say that person has 10 um, closely linked individuals with nearly identical viruses. So A seems to be a hub, seems to be somebody who's transmitting a lot. In fact, A could have a partner B. A could have only one partner, and B is the one that's linked to all those, but we don't have B in our study. So this is why there's, you know, again, there's a limit to how we interpret these data. My interpretation is if you're in a highly connected network, sooner or later you may be at risk of transmitting HIV. There's a lot of HIV transmission occurring, and ultimately we'd like to be able to use this information not just to say who's at risk of transmitting, but to identify those who are at risk of acquiring and target prevention to those who are negative and not wait for them to become positive. Yeah, this is an excellent, another example of how um, you can do everything right, but perceptions of what you have found can take people down a path that we wouldn't want to go down. Yeah. And it's, and, um, so this next question has to do with um, the choices that might be made in targeting particular groups. Based on your studies, we may identify certain groups as being high risk. Interventions might be then um, interventions in terms of education or, or needle exchange, whatever it might be, would be made possible in those high-risk groups. But that means you aren't targeting others. So this person's wondering, how much do you worry about what you're then doing to the others? Is there some sort of stigmatization that these groups matter more than the others and so on? Yeah, I, I think that is one of the risks, um, that there is the perception that one group is the cause of more transmission. I try to use the word is associated with you know, a greater amount of HIV transmission because we don't know cause and effect. We know associations. Um, so, for instance, if we knew that there were um, a cluster of highly related people with highly related viruses associated with one particular bar, would we want to target that bar? Well, the bar owner might not be thrilled with that. That might not be good for business. Um, but, um, but that's the kind of question, sort of, if we knew that we could massively disrupt the local transmission network and have a big impact on future transmissions, is it worth targeting a venue, uh, targeting a group of people, you know, young people between the ages of 15 and 25 who live in a certain region of San Diego. One thing that we could also do is target prevention messages in more culturally appropriate ways rather than the everybody should get tested, everybody should get treated. We could develop targeted prevention messages for groups who are at greatest risk um, that might be more effective than what we're doing now, the sort of one-size-fits-all to some extent. Um, and yes, I think there are risks of people feeling persecuted and, you know, you may be in that group and not be HIV infected, be HIV infected and, and have a negative feeling about it. That's why we're having this discussion because it always is going to come back to, do you think the potential benefit is worth the risk that some people may feel unfairly singled out? Um, and that doesn't mean I wouldn't target everyone. I still, again, believe every single person who's infected should be on therapy. But I didn't show the sort of slide that indicates how poorly we do that right now. So I think it, it's not about withholding therapy from people who aren't highly connected. It's more about, you know, 
trying to reinforce effective therapy and adherence um, in groups that um, aren't staying on therapy. And, and right now in the United States, that's the majority of people. So related to this question of groups, um, just to be clear, where this, you're, you're thinking ahead. So at this point, unless I'm mistaken, no groups have been targeted based on HIV network analysis. None. Right, okay. So the thought is, what will happen when you yeah. do that? So I'm going to slightly reword this next person's mm-hmm. question to say, what methods or precautions might you take in the future if you did decide that it's um, professors of biology at UCSD <laughs> who need to be highly targeted? So how would yeah. you protect... Would you need yeah. to protect? How would you protect that group in some way? Well, I think... Um, you know, I think one of the first questions is um, probably limiting some of the data. In other words, is it possible to give some of the information but not all of it? Um, so, for instance, rather than all professors of biology, how about you know science professors or University of California professors? Something that groups a larger group so that one group isn't singled out. And there are lots of ways of doing this. We could single out one individual. I think we can all agree that would be highly invasive of personal privacy. But the, the, the more you take the group of interest and surround them with a somewhat larger and related group, the less the, the potential stigma and negative consequence. Also, potentially, the more diffuse the intervention because you're, you know, the bigger, the more protected you get, as we do today, everybody should get tested, everyone should get treated, you miss a lot of people who think, that's not me, I'm not at risk. So the bigger you make the circle, the more likely you are to miss your target, because you're not focusing in. Okay, good. This next question is, is, a, is a good one, and I think you've thought about it uh, quite a bit. So first, um, I, the premise behind this question is that there's been a lot of HIV AIDS research over the years, lots of researchers working in this field. Um, and the California Department of Public Health has been dealing with a lot of people who are HIV infected. Um, in both cases, they have information that one would like to keep private. So do you have any insight into what the success is in those two groups of, of keeping that information confidential? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's um, highly successful. I think everybody, I mean, there are probably unethical people in every field, but the assumption is um, that people who are invested in the care of Healthcare in HIV-infected uh, uh, healthcare are highly um, aware and cautious about the sharing of information. So I think um, I would say that the um, exception is the case where there's a breach in confidentiality, and the rule is that we are highly cautious and careful about the sharing of these data, regardless of what the setting is, whether it's public health, private practice, research. We're all very, very careful. Um, I think um, the you know as with anything, the more you disseminate the information, the 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 greater I think the potential. And I'm not totally sure about this, but I think the greater potential is that if you share these data widely, you may share them with people who don't fully understand what you can, what conclusions you can and cannot draw from the data. This gets back again to the legal um, implications. Um, or the stigma that goes along with it. So, you know, it might be that somebody misinterprets the data and draws the wrong conclusion and writes a story about this group of people who are infecting everyone in San Diego. We shared the data with the intention of doing good, and instead we stigmatized an entire group of people. 
So I think, um, I think again, the, 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 the norm is that people are very careful with the data. But I think the question is how do we um, uh, enlarge the circle of people who have access to these data to use them um, and still provide the proper training and education so that people don't come to um, improper conclusions about what we, can't, what, what we know and what we think we know about the data. Within what you are looking at in your sequencing, um, is there information that is directly relevant to how virulent HIV is or to how treatable it is? Yes. Um, treatable, yes. Um, the sequencing we use is derived from drug resistance testing. So everyone gets a drug resistance test, and based on those data, we can tell how likely or unlikely someone is to respond, and that's why we do the test, to predict what drugs to use. Um, the good news is we have a lot of choices now. Um, so yes, when I said before, there'd have to be something unique about the cluster. One unique feature might be a highly drug-resistant strain that was connected to a certain group of people. Um, you know, it, it becomes very concerning when we think we may not be able to treat people, even with the wide range of drugs that we have now. So that might be investigated. Um, did I, well, that? I think that's, I, I think that's the, the basic answer to this question. Oh, and you asked more virulent. Yeah. What, yes, oh, that, yeah. Th there are, I think, less about the, the sequence that is used for drug resistance testing, but we can, again, this is the first step in this sort of work. We can sequence the whole virus. So when you start sequencing the whole virus, and it'll, it's becoming more and more, uh, it's becoming easier and easier to get more and more information from the virus. And from other um, pieces of the virus, yes, we can make a lot of um, uh, interpretations about the virulence of the virus. So just, I, I, you know, I'm curious about this because I'm not quite clear. So I know you aren't sequencing the entire virus now for your studies, but how much of it are you sequencing? Sanjay, how big is Paul? <laughs> is it one-tenth. One one-tenth. About 10%. So um, right, I, this, this question, um, I'm not sure where it goes, but you work in HIV, whereas I don't. So maybe you um, know, and I, I'm going to try and suggest a direction of where this question goes. They're, they're saying simply, what about HIV AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa? And so I, I'm going to presume maybe what they're asking is, um, what is the role of network analysis mm -hmm. sub-Saharan Africa? Is somebody doing that kind of Yeah, work? I think one of the, so yes, I think network analysis is highly relevant anywhere HIV sequence data exist. The more um, resource poor the country, the less sequence data that exist. Um, however, um, having said that, as I said, this field has become very popular. Um, so I know, for instance, the NIH, I know, I'm told that the NIH is going to announce a new funding award for network analysis in resource-limited settings. So there are a small number of studies, research studies, that are ongoing in sub-Saharan Africa, in Thailand, in India, where people are collecting sequence data. Um, so I think um, as sequence data becomes cheaper and easier to obtain, um, as it becomes more normative, um, those countries will be able to do exactly what we're doing. And, and one of the sort of major things that I haven't mentioned to date is that all of these data, not all, the majority of these data reside in central commercial laboratories. So most people don't do their own HIV sequencing. They send it off to a commercial lab. 
So the ability to do network analysis exists in almost every location where there is a commercial lab doing sequencing because they've got all the relevant sequences and can do this kind of analysis should they have the uh, methodology, um, the expertise with the methodology. Okay. So we're going to need to wrap up in just a couple of minutes, but there's one thing I wanted to come back to at the end because it, um, it actually was intriguing to me. Um, I had not understood that the rate of HIV infection, as, if I understood you correctly, to say has not changed, but I'm not sure over what period of time you say it has not changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, is this, are we going back to the beginnings of when? No, to, okay, the so, last decade. So, so the last decade, the rate of infection, and when we say rate, the percentage of the population becoming newly infected, is that? Yeah, the, the number of new infections that occur Yes, within a population. So in the United States, the number of new HIV-infected people per year remains relatively flat. What is unfortunate about that is that that reflects a decrease in non-MSM, non-gay men. In gay men, the rate is going up, and it's been going up for the last decade. So I don't know why there isn't more attention given to that. The largest group of people people who are at risk for HIV in the United States are gay men, and the rate of new infections in gay men has been increasing for the last decade and continues to increase despite the fact that we have rolled out universal treatment recommendation, universal testing recommendations, and that's, again, a, a large part of this impetus to figure out can we do something more effectively because we have increasing rates, and the same is true in the UK, um, that rates of new infections in gay men are increasing. In San Diego, it's the same? Yes. And let me rephrase. that We're always looking back um, the, over the last few years. Dr. Maida could come up and give a whole talk on how there are regions of San Diego that may be looking better, um, and those may be associated with um, our testing program and more effective treatment. That's what you're getting at, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the area of central San Diego does appear to be, we hope, showing some positive trends of decreasing new infections, and we think that that is associated with our um, uh, effective um, screening program, specifically screening for acute infection and getting those individuals rapidly on therapy and into care. Well, thank you. Um, I want to um, conclude with a couple of thoughts. Um, First one is that this has been a remarkably collaborative effort this evening, Um, not just the efforts of um, Sanjay and Stahl, who helped select those questions from the audience, but um, maybe at least as important was a lot of you came up with questions and really good questions that helped us to, to dissect some of the ethical issues that go with this. I would go so far as to say this has been one of the most successful programs we've had to deal with the ethics of the science issues. So I want to thank everybody for that being possible. And I particularly want to thank Susan for a really clear and information-packed presentation and talk. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.